You're listening to Thinking Within the Church with Andrew Ray Williams. Welcome to another episode of Thinking Within the Church. My name's Andrew, your host. Today, I'm really looking forward to having a conversation with a colleague and friend, Patrick Odin. Patrick is the Director of Academic Integration, Fuller Equip, and an Affiliate Professor of Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's the author of such books as Hope for the Oppressor, Discovering Freedom Through Transformative Community, which we're going to be talking about today, and also The Transformative Church, New Ecclesial Models in the Theology of Jürgen Moltmann. Patrick uh, is, like I said, not only a colleague but a friend, and we have the privilege of working together on a book with Velimari Karkanen called Theological Renewal for the Third Millennium uh, with Cascade Books, and just our time connecting over that research project and book project was just uh, such a great experience for me, uh, just to really get to know Patrick and his heart for uh, not only uh, scholarship, but the church. Patrick's book, Hope for the Oppressor, published with Fortress Academic, with a foreword by Jürgen Moltmann, is actually going to be the book we are going to be talking about today. And this is just a great conversation. Really appreciate Patrick's time and uh, appreciate you being on to listen to it. I know you're going to be uh, challenged by it, and there's going to be lots of things that hopefully will resonate with you as you listen. So without further ado, let's get right into the interview. Well, Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Oh, I'm excited too, man. This is uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. You know, I, 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 I loved working with you on our, um, joint project book, um, yeah. that we edited together. And, uh, I just respect you as a, as a scholar, as a person. And, um, I just, I love this book. I think there's so much relevance to the church. Um, so I'm just happy to have you on. I'm appreciate that. And I so deeply respect you too. And, and even if we haven't, we don't talk a lot the, I I feel working together on that edited book. It just gave me so much insight and I follow you on Twitter and I'm follow you more than you probably realize. So I'm, <laughs> you have so many different <laughs> things and so many different creative outlets. And I, I always look to see because I, what you're doing, because I respect your insights and experience and the way you're pushing the bounds, but also holding the ground in so many ways. So it's great to be here. Thanks, Patrick. It's a mutual man. Well, let's let's get into your book. Talk to us a little bit about the main thrust of your book. Like, what what are you trying to really say here, and how does it really relate to um, to some of these these church issues that you're wanting to address? Yeah, and that the 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 tension we have, and this is something that Moltmann has talked about from earlier days, is that really comes down to what is it? What is sin? What is the church? What is holiness? We can say Moltmann doesn't talk as much about that, but it's implicit in a lot of what he's saying. What does it mean to be a whole Christian in a genuine Christian community? And most understandings of sin have really split off into two different categories. On the one hand, the more evangelical, even the the fundamentalist in the best sense of the word, idea of sin as being our as being guilt and behavior and this inner brokenness, which is all true. Um, and so we've turned salvation into being a very individualistic, freed from our 
uh, our actual or existential guilt, and we go to heaven. And and so church is about how do we spread that message of salvation that we're all inherently sinners and we need Jesus, which is all true. Um, and but so that's what that's what we can call the evangelistic understanding of salvation. On the on the other hand, we have the social understanding of salvation, where uh, people, especially in the last hundred years or more, but we we have liberation theology where 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 it said the church has often been a source of power and keeping the power structures in place and told the poor people that salvation is only something they should wait for for heaven. And so there's this understanding that that if we have a narrow view of what salvation is, that's true, but the Bible doesn't have a narrow view of salvation. We see Jesus saying, what does it mean to be the Messiah? He was he preached to the poor, he healed. And so it, it, salvation is a bigger issue about recognition of other people as beloved by God. And how, how do we love people? We help them in their circumstances. And it's not about earning salvation, it's an expression of God's love. And we can't just tell poor people it's fine to be poor. You'll you'll have a better experience of heaven. We say we're called to live in a new way that reflects the values of heaven even now. And so there's this there's this tension in the church. And because liberation theology highlights the nature of sin and brokenness in social ways as as primarily relating to the very obvious and true aspects of poverty and health and oppression and violence, liberation theology became absolutely focused on the needs of the oppressed, saying, how do we lift the oppressed out? And some liberation writers said, the, the oppressors will never give up power. They need to be forced to do that to recognize their own brokenness. And that creates then this tension. So a lot of liberation theology from its earlier time re re relied on Marxism in, for the categories, which is understandable because Christianity lost any dialogue about how to help the poor. So they went to the places that were talking about the poor and the rich. But then that becomes very co-opted and seduced to, to uh, uh, less than Christian ways of resolving conflict. And so you have revolutions, you have violence, you have justifying a lot of um, turns. And what happens in so much of that, of that is if the, the oppressed take over and, and, and there's this revolution and they find their new freedom, but then they become the new oppressors. So instead of resolving this in a place of open community, you're just flipping sides. So everyone says the system is right as it is, but we just want to be the powers in the system. And what Christ came to do is, say, is to say the system itself is broken. It's not just about inverting power, it's about finding this new way of community together. And if we, don't, if we only talk about one side of liberation, that of the oppressed, one, we, we ignore the idea that the oppressed can become new oppressors and you just have this inverting and two we're really not recognizing the depth of sin and brokenness because in our our assumptions here is that wealth and power are inherently good and that and these these things are are morally neutral whereas if you if you spend any time in an industrialized wealthy nation you know that brokenness isn't just living it to the poor you have extreme brokenness of people who have all the privilege they can want um, and are still deeply empty and some of that emptiness then is transmitted into other forms of sin but because they have the earthly uh, validation, they don't necessarily see a need to change. And so they're actually more caught in their chains of brokenness than the poor. I think here, 
um, and I hope it's okay. I think here of like Her- Harry and Meghan, um, the 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 sometime royals who have this huge house in Montecito and have everything you could possibly imagine, but no one would look at them and say they are the icon of peace and contentment. They would they have everything going for them, but there's chaos and frenzy. How does the gospel reach them? Does Christ have a message for them? Yes. How, but the method of freedom for them is different than that of the poor. It's not that they need more stuff. It's that they need to be called out for the ways they're finding identity and meaning in, in insufficient ways. And that's tricky because they have to recognize it. But that's, that means that the gospel is for them too. The gospel is for the wealthy because the wealthy need salvation as well. Absolutely. And that's that's the whole goal of the book. Yeah, that's that's so well said. One thing I find really helpful about your book is the fact that oftentimes we can talk about the oppressed and the oppressors as if in in a very western kind of mindset that we're just sole individuals and caught, you know, some people are just oppressors, some are uh oppressed and it's just kind of we're just we're doing this as singular individuals. But you right. talk about how we're all caught into systems of oppression that right. give that give us um, ways of being oppressed and oppressing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And, and I think the key here is really seeing how so much of theological and even Christian dialogue is still caught in a very modern understanding of binaries either this or that and and the reductionistic tendency for modernity was helpful to describe things but it's also very simplistic and we 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 this isn't just true for for sociology or church or anything it's true of science and we we if we if we say newtonian physics is true that's that's not wrong but it also doesn't describe all of reality. If we're limited only to what Newton said, we actually can't do what we're doing now, which is talk to each other at a extreme distance and like we're sitting in the same room because the reality of nature and science is much more complex than yes. the simplistic rules. And so part of this is, is me trying to come to terms with some of the modern assumptions and ways of talking about oppression were that binary you're oppressed or you're oppressor, you're this or you're that, you're one category or this category. And that is helpful in a general sense, but not actually descriptive to our experiences. And as anyone in extremely wealthy, powerful settings knows, there's winners and losers, even among the billionaire class. There's ways, and if anyone who's been in extreme situations of extreme poverty or prison or elsewhere knows that even in places of everyone's oppressed, there are oppressors who oppress other oppressed. And yeah. so everyone has this combination of being both an oppressor in some ways and oppressed in others. And Momon himself brought this up. There was a conference he talks about in, in the foreword of the book where there was a conference of liberation theologians and he, he called out the fact that these were all white men at the conference, where are the women's voices? Where are the people with, with with black skin voices? And there, and as anyone who knows who knows a lot about theology, is some of the people some of the people who talk the most about liberation of others are imposing structures, whether social or 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 uh, vocational structures that are extremely unjust. And 
yet we ignore that because it because we 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 shy away from complexity so what i did and this is where marxism comes in it's understanding the benefit of the marxist conversation but also the critique of of forms of Marxism and whether that's on economics or race, there's that similar tendency to, to break down all the problems of something into these binaries. And like, as if that's the only system, as if we can talk about racism and ignore sexism in communities um, or classism and ignore like, there, there's always this combination that's happening. And so rather than rely on Marx, um, I, I found this really interesting uh, sociologist named Nicholas Luhmann and who's absurdly difficult to read and i wouldn't rec hardly recommend to anyone but i just <laughs> I, it was just one of those things where i just felt like this was drawing me into to speaking about reality in a way that was helpful and so what, what his argument is is that we're not as actually individual people as much as we think we are that the world structure, it, 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 it's, it might be helpful to think about how ants work, <laughs> um, the, the, the insects, not your uh, older uh, female relative. And, <laughs> and, uh, and ants who your relative work in a very different way. Uh, yes, and we won't, yes. that, that's a later conversation. Um, but ants are, are, we wouldn't say they're rational. We wouldn't say that they're thinking through their sense of identity, but if you study an anthill, it's really interesting how they all just do their roles. And there are some ants who are who are who will bite you if you invade. There's some ants who just go out. There's some ants who who take the dead ants and put them outside. There's everyone has this role and they just do it. And we're a lot more like ants than we really want to admit. There is this awareness that we have we're cognizant of our own self but we're also driven much more by society and social expectations in a non-rational way that shapes us more than we want to admit and so what we what we have is societies that have these different systems and each of these different systems operates according to its own categories of rules and ethics and morals and all these different categories are are forming us to be a certain kind of player in this category and the categories aren't rational it's not like there's an intentional thing they're 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 what we call emergent social realities that that give structure to us and they don't care about us as people as as individuals we just we don't matter we're cogs in their system and whether we're we're, we're doing well in the system or doing low it's meaningless all the system cares about is its own continuation and it's not care in a conscious sense it's just it, it it it's just this emergent social way so we can talk about the economic system the economic system all the economic system cares about is the flow of money and resources that help organize a society if you're rich or poor as a person as an individual someone who i recognize as myself i actually don't matter the system all that matters is the system is perpetuating we can talk about that in terms of religion um, a, a person, an individual doesn't really matter in a religious system. All that matters is this navigation between a sense of the sacred and human understanding and, and all these other deeper existential parts of ourselves that help create this sense of order and peace. And, and but me as a pastor or me as a person, I'm just, I'm not a real person. Um, a, a very quick example of this, and and because that was talking at a high level, is go. To, let's go to a, a supermarket. We have a transaction when we 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 get our groceries. We have a transaction with the checker. 
we may have some nice small talk. But the core, the goal of this transaction is not to identify and recognize each other as people. It is to, I, I need food to further my own life system. Their job is to, is to take my money. As people, we don't matter. The, we, we could be nameless cogs and still have the same event happen. Or a bank. I go to a bank teller, same thing. And, and it comes, it, when you realize that this is true across all scales, religion, economic systems, that effectively I'm anonymous in these systems. I'm a person to my own self, but the system doesn't care about me. But I then have to feel like to have meaning, I have to perform well in the economic system. Is performing well in the economic system something that's inherently valuable, val gives value to me? No. So I have to have this part of me that says I have to make money. I also have this part of me that says I have to go to church. And I have a separate part of me that says I have to follow the, be, make a political choice. So I have all these different little parts of me that are operating in these different sections according to their own rules. And I'm what the brain does is try to make that cohesive. It tries to give meaning to that. But there's actually no meaning to that because I'm not a real person. And other people involved in this aren't real people. So instead of interacting with people as real people, like I'm talking to you, um, you're a real person. I'm a real person. So we have this connection. Most of our life functions is not talking to a person, it's talking to what Lumen calls a communication. So what matters to a checker in a supermarket is not me as a real person, but that I'm communicating money to their checkout system. All they want to do for their job is move people through the line. And that's true across the board. We just, we're communicating not to real people, but to other people's attempt to navigate all this emptiness. So we're, we're fundamentally anonymous and insignificant. And this isn't just true for those of us who don't have well-paying jobs. Think of a pop star. So we, we, can, we can look at someone who is extremely famous and, and making all this money as a pop star and, and draws in crowds of people, but the system actually doesn't care about them as a person. There's always going to be pop stars. We can look at we can look 40 years ago and see see people filling the same role and the same audience listening to different music, and they're all it's all playing a game to perpetuate the entertainment system. The actual person, the heart of the person, who Jesus recognized, isn't actually it doesn't matter. And once yeah. you realize that that we all have this underlying sense that we fundamentally don't matter and that we're all playing a game, you realize how despair steps in. And this is where I bring in Kierkegaard. We're all confronted with the idea that we really want to be fully human, but we're not. And we're aware of that. And we either fall into despair or we distract ourselves with other things. But at the heart of it is that I don't actually matter to other people. I am just this thing that exists in, in a transaction transaction way. And what's what's important about the gospel that we see, this is leading into some of what I was probably some later questions, is the interesting thing about Jesus is he he refused to play with the systems. Yeah. So we can see the cross where he's confronting the the Roman system. He's confronting the religious leaders. And then when people would come up to them, it would they would ask him questions in a transactiony way, but he would always look at them and see them as people. So the woman at the well, 
Like, do you want water? There's a transaction that was happening. Jesus says, I know who you are. And he, he kept, I, he kept seeing people as real people and recognizing them for who they actually are, not just this transaction. And that's then the tension, even in the church, because we always want to bring it back to these transactions. But it's all about real people relating to real people in the way that Jesus did. Did that make sense? (laughs) No, it's good. You, you, you delve into the deep waters of system theory and then brought us up at the gospel. So that that was great, Patrick, because (laughs) I think, because I think that helps explain kind of the ways in which we are all swimming in this water without realizing that we are in it. Right. That's right. And how these systems actually dictate the ways that we relate to others and actually dehumanize each other and Absolutely. become we are oppressed but we also become oppressors just by participating in the system that we are born into that we are automatically begin to functioning in and we're not even realizing it and, and that's the only way we know how to live it's not like right. uh, it, this is how life is it's not like we're all like intentionally choosing and then this is where that's we can right. talk about sin in a big sense it's so caught up in not just our behavior, but the whole system. Uh, we there, we're a fish in the water. You take us out of water, we don't know how to breathe. That's right. Where it's 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 you know that's where like uh, Paul talks about the principalities and the powers, right? right? That there's this sin at the individual level, but there's this sin at the societal level, in which we're all we're all participating in it, whether we want to or not. Like you said, it's not a choice; it is what it is. And Jesus comes as the liberator, right? And this is when uh, I think is a great segue to talk about kind of part two, where you begin to delve into to biblical and early Christianity uh, and and their response to oppression. Uh, what are some of the ways that that you, if you want to riff on that, um, that that it provides a new way of of humanizing us? Yeah, and I I think that this is a really a the important thing is to understand that this isn't like an extra biblical or I'm adding or liberation theology is somehow a later reflection. And I think in some conservative movements and not unfairly because it's been done that way. They, yeah, they think of this that, as additional. I, I think that's, I think that's important to, to, yeah. to nail down. Yeah. Uh, so, so liberation theology as a core comes out of biblical reflection. It's Gustav, if you read some of the earlier works, they're they're very much reading scripture. But then later on, it becomes themselves co-opted by the systems and loses that biblical tethering. So there's good critiques about liberation theology that that in as much as it distances itself from that other approach to salvation, we are all sinners, and there is this deep thing. Then it's lost its way. So, but we also have to understand that at the core of scripture is liberation. And this isn't a political statement. This isn't a theological movement. This is understanding that the, the archetype narrative of all of scripture is the Exodus narrative. The Bible covers an immense amount of issues and topics and people, but spends a surprisingly amount of time on this narrative of freeing the people of Israel from Egypt. Why? Because they were oppressed as slaves and God loves them. And that then becomes this archetype narrative throughout of God is the savior who sees people in their suffering and brings them out of slavery. It's a big reason why slaves in in, in uh, American history weren't, weren't taught to read, because if you start reading the Bible, 
you actually yes. realize that even though Paul talks about be content in your slavery, the fundamental narrative of Scripture is freedom. And slavery is not, I mean, we, we can read Philemon, we can read um, the Exodus narrative. There's a, there's a core call to freedom, and it's not a freedom just of a spiritual nature. God and Creator is the Lord of all things and is calling people to this redemptive experience of freedom together in community that was what he intended and human sin became this relational brokenness it's not a legal brokenness at its core there's elements we can talk about that but we can look at adam and eve rejecting god because they want to do things their own way and then they found sin and death we look at cain and abel and say God knew what was in Cain's mind and says, don't give in to this temptation. I didn't accept your sacrifice, but don't let this lead you down a bad road. And he kills Abel. What is God's response? He punishes Cain, but he doesn't reject Cain. Even, even after the murder, God says there's a way of returned life. And we then see this, narr this, this conflict narrative going all through scripture of sin and evil and brokenness, whether from from below or from above, God calling people back into this place of freedom and peace and righteousness. And this is so nicely expressed by the, by the Jewish law and the Torah of what it's excruciatingly detailed in a lot of things that we just don't care about anymore. And it's easy to get caught up in, the, in all of it. But if you look at it for what it's doing, it's really how do we navigate wealth and poverty as real issues? Those aren't necessarily going away, but how do we navigate those things in a place that get, that maintains ultimately freedom and community for everyone? So you have rules about what happens if your ox jumps the fence and go, gores your neighbor's goat. We also have the Sabbath where I can't make people work seven days a week for my own benefit. Everyone gets a day off. The rich and the poor get this day off. We have the year of Jubilee where, where debts are freed. You have this fundamental, very social aspect of God saying, live in community. Let's jump ahead to the New Testament. We have uh, Paul's teaching on communion, where, he t where he's, he, he's uh, castigating, critiquing the Corinthian church and saying, you're not doing it right. And it's not a theological issue. He's not talking about the thing we're obsessed, we tend to be obsessed with, is what happens to the bread. He's saying, you're treating the poor as separate category, which while in Christ, you are all one. Hmm. And fundamentally, that then makes salvation about community. It makes it about the biblical call to live in community, no matter your status. It's not saying we're all going to be the same and we all have these equal experiences, but what it's saying is we're all valued as real people and recognized by God. And all through the Psalms and all through the prophets, what does Isaiah say is real worship? I could care less about your feasts, help the widows and the poor. It's all, it's all throughout about this very practical thing that, that is also very spiritual. It's very spiritual because how I relate to you, how I relate to someone who's poor in my community has an impact on who I am and how I, I am experiencing the world and experiencing God's Lordship. So God doesn't separate us into categories the way we do. He doesn't separate out our, like, well, that's a business decision that has nothing to do with my spirituality. Mm. For God, those are all one and the same. And if we are truly to love God and love our neighbor, it has always a practical and spiritual aspect of recognizing and responding to each other in our, in our genuine humanity. And yeah. that's all through scripture. And yet the church early on had that. But 
but the church is co-opted and 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 in an understandable way and it's a, i love the church and i have so much hope for the church but it's also like people drawn into patterns of power and rationalization so we could we we went from the being a community that in which slaves were embraced in part to being a community that enforced slavery and and justified slavery through through scripture well what is the process of that it's a process of rationalizing oppression rather than understanding god's freedom for everybody yeah. and we have to return to this core biblical early church narrative which isn't idealizing the scripture or the early church it's saying they were looking at something and we've gotten off track and rationalized behavior so no wonder people aren't following christianity or rejecting it we're not teaching the full gospel mm. Yeah, and you know, you and I swam in the same waters, and so that word "full gospel" usually doesn't mean that. But right. I do want to say an amen <laughs> to the fact that that right. is a part of the full gospel. Absolutely, and I use that yes. intentionally, knowing knowing you <laughs> in the audience. That's right, man. The, That's right. There, there is a fuller gospel to what than what the full gospel has talked about. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, you know, something that I'd love to, to have you talk about is the the emphasis on the creation and sustaining present of the community by the Holy Spirit. Because that's what you seem to really drill down on is um, how the Holy Spirit can help facilitate liberation for both the oppressed and the oppressor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and and, and it starts off really with an awareness that even though it seems uh, daring or unusual to say, well, now this is based on the Holy Spirit and it's a whole new direction, it really comes out of the fact that for the most part in the Western church, we have not had a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, a functional. So we have, we talk about the Holy Spirit, but in terms of our behavior and organization, and we, we can talk in tongues, but but we tend to dismiss the actual idea that the Spirit gives gifts to everybody. And there's an underlying doctrine of the Holy Spirit that the church has ignored in trying to establish itself within the earthly systems. And what the Spirit does is what the Spirit has always done. We, we see this in the moment of creation, bringing order out of chaos. There's a little debate on that on, on whether that's the Holy Spirit, but I, I think there's there's enough nuance there. Um, and, and in the early chapters of Genesis, of Genesis, we see that that the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of the Lord, is is all is used as a way of talking about God's breath, and it's always the Spirit of life. So Moltmann's main book on the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Life, because where the God gives his Ruach, there's life. Where God takes away his Ruach, there's death. And so fundamental to the nature of life and living and thriving is the Holy Spirit. We see this more specifically in other parts of the Old Testament where the, on occasion, the Ruach Elohim fills a specific person for furthering the mission of God. So uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, they're filled with the Holy Spirit like a cup is filled with liquid to, to make the tabernacle, to make this expression and experience of God's temple. We see, we see Joseph filled, we, we see Joshua filled, and we see, we see the prophets and go down the line. But in the early church, we see that this work of the Spirit that was focused in Jesus, who brought Jesus into the world through Mary, and animated and gave uh, cohesion to this Trinitarian work of Jesus, Jesus says in John 14, it's good I'm going away, because if I go away, I'm sending you all the Holy Spirit who will be your advocate and will teach you everything, which is all the things. That's, that's, <laughs> that's expansive. Yes. And uh, that's not some of the things, that's, that's all the things. 
And for us, we, we really want to like say, yes, Jesus, yes, that was fine you say that, but we really want to just hold on to a, a Christology by itself and create models in which we have ways of coming to Jesus and um, facilitating the presence of Jesus, and we're just going to ignore how the Holy Spirit has chosen to work. And it makes a lot of good religious sense and fills us with a lot of pious ideas, but it's distancing us from the idea that how the Holy Spirit works is not a minor issue of Christianity. It is the very experience of God's continuing work among humanity, and the Spirit has chosen to work among all God's people. Not just one part, not just the rich, not just the poor. The Spirit works through everybody. And in doing that, empowers everybody to reflect this bigger, grander mission of God's work in bringing redemption and recreation to the world that he so loves. And as a part of that, the Spirit, is, we're, we're not modeling ourselves on the Trinity, but the, because the Spirit exists in eternal community, we become the kind of people who are shaped by the Spirit's own experience of reality. We are drawn into community. We are drawn into a situation where we all need each other and need to listen to each other. And rich or poor is actually meaningless because God works in profound ways no matter our social category. The key for Christianity is to understand that we actually have to be attentive to the way God's system works, the kingdom of God, not the way these earthly, earthly systems work. So understanding how the spirit works in this way brings us this tension of we need order, we need structure, we need a framework, but we also need to acknowledge that every single person who follows Christ is fully recognized, not just as saved, but as a contributor. Mm -hmm. And I need to hear from them. I need the gifts that they have. They need the gifts that I have. And even if I have, I'm a Reverend Dr. Patrick Odin, P MDiv, PhD, I have letters before and after my name. I'm, you know, I have all this stuff but God's not just working through me. I, I can learn from my kids. I can learn from someone who's deeply uneducated, but they pray. I need to, I need to know who the Spirit is working through them and can confront me and can, can teach me because that's the nature of the Spirit's work. And if we yeah. don't organize our understanding of church like that, if we're not recognizing each other as genuinely filled by the Spirit, we're then just mimicking the patterns of the world and depersonalizing and dehumanizing each other. And so what does that do to the Holy Spirit? It grieves the Holy Spirit. So why should we expect the Holy Spirit to work in the ways that we want the Holy Spirit to work if we're not listening to the ways that the Holy Spirit is saying the Holy Spirit is working? Mm. Mm. There's so much to chew on there, Patrick. It's really, really good. You know, I think that one thing I told you before we press record is that, you know, this is an academic book. And there's a lot of a lot that this contributes to the conversation going on in the academy. But I think even more so, which is a compliment, there is even more application in the local church, which I absolutely love, especially being a local church pastor myself. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you envision individuals and communities help implementing the principles and insights from your book? Um, in, in church life, in their everyday lives, that can help bring about transformative change. Yeah, and that's the, you, you touch on what is my real heart. I'm in academia. I have degrees. I have a fancy hat and a fancy robe and titles and everything. But I didn't 
go this direction because I was interested in getting academic power or influence. I like having a job. Don't don't get me wrong. Um, and this is this <laughs> is my all. now professional training. But my heart has always been for the church. And coming out of my own deep brokenness and some poverty and family issues and seeing both the importance of the church, but also the emptiness of the church, it caused me to ask questions. And that's really been the driving thing of how do I navigate my own frustrations and discouragement and not just say, it's me who's broken. Yes, there's part of me that's me who's broken, but there's also a brokenness of the church that that is worth we we need to critique. And we wouldn't have most of our New Testament if we if if we had to avoid critiquing the church. Most Absolutely. of our New Testament is Paul critiquing the church, and yep. so we're we're still called to do that because we're caught in this tension. And the, the tension is one of who are we actually called to be as a church and come back to the biblical vision of that, not in idealizing the church, but in recognizing that they were still wrestling with the things they're wrestling with. And we have some areas of growth, but also some areas of weakness. And it also comes to, to understanding how deeply philosophical assumptions and cultural assumptions has uh, has has caused us to have a vision of what it means to be a Christian that isn't necessarily biblical. And this is where I think it's important to talk. Yes, it's it, this is an academic book and it's written at, at an academic level. And I, my hope is to, to do another version that's meant at a wider level because I think it, it's actually even more pressing, like you say. And the key is to, is to move away from the modern assumption and the historic church assumption that God works from a top-down perspective, that if we just get this high-level government stuff in order, it will all trickle down to bringing change. And so we, we, we tend to be caught in that still. When we think about how is it that we change the morals and ethics and re-Christianize the nation, so many of us jump right to the political. We say, we have to elect this person or that person. And depending on what side you are on, this, on, the theo on the theological and political fence, you will say, this person is the devil and this person is our savior. We, we want the president or the judges to be our new messiahs. And yeah. we think, so we pour all our time and money and conflict and all this stuff into creating these divisions and they're broken people like the rest of us. But because we've been shaped by the political and economic systems, we don't even realize that we're being drawn in to perpetuate those. But what does the kingdom do? It does what Jesus did, which is recognize each other. And this is where it's, it's important to, not, to, to understand that there's a big scope here, but for us not to get overwhelmed or to think that my own role and place is useless. It's precisely because I'm in a distinct place in time that the Spirit can do a distinct work in and through me. And if if all we needed was a top-down structure, well, it would have been better for Jesus to stay and not just in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus in his incarnated self was limited to a time and place. In sending the Spirit, the Spirit goes out and sends this mission to every single person in every part of the world so that this mission can take place even in a small way and affect someone. So the goal here is not to think too grandly, but to also not to minimize our role. How is it in every single community and every single church, a community of people can recognize each other as real people and live in their particular community and bring a sense of genuine humanity to there? Mm. So for me, as, as, as when I go to the store, I, I see a person there, not a transaction. 
And there are some times in you know contemporary life we're caught up in a lot of bureaucracy where where we have something go wrong or someone's done and we we want to get on the phone and and speak our mind and assert our power. And for me, there are times in which something's gone wrong, but I all I will always try to say and acknowledge the person who's taking my report isn't at fault. So I want to recognize them as a genuine human. And they will never know the background, but it's it's who I am as a person. I have experiences of students these these days at, at Fuller at Westmont. They're going the tendency for the academy is to create this transaction. I have given you a syllabus, you do your assignments, I grade those assignments, we all move on. Even in Christian theology and ministry courses, it, there seems to be this commitment to the syllabus and this transaction nature. We don't see ourselves as real people. In teaching, I have I have taken on the habit of sharing a lot about my life and being vulnerable because I want them to see me as a real person. But I'm also probably a lot more flexible in due dates and a lot of other things than most professors because I acknowledge the fact that there are some students who are just blowing off my course and don't want to work, but there are also students who are dealing with significant personal issues. And if my goal is just transactionary, do the assignment or you fail the class, I will treat them in one way. If I see them as a real person and we're all trying to navigate learning about Christ together in this quarter, then I listen to their story and adapt my syllabus and timeline so that is something that becomes fruitful for them. And those are those big, those aren't going to be in the news. But what it does is within my personal reach, my personal ability to have power, a professor, a pastor can be oppressors, but within my own personal reach, I treat people as real people. If we, if just I'm doing that, it's not going to have an impact. What if every Christian in every church in all over the world started doing that? That becomes absolute fundamental change where people experience Christ in a way they never thought imaginable. Absolutely. It's all about the small thing. It's all about the local. It's all about the immediate. What is within my personal space to affect people? I can either I can either fall into the systems or I can follow the kingdom. I don't have control of what the president does. I don't have control of what the judges do. I don't have control of mass economics, but I do have control of my money and my areas of power and how I respond in uh, difficult circumstances, how I respond to my family, how I, I mean, I always use this analogy, how I respond in traffic. Like traffic is always like this big indicator of where I'm at spiritually because- Oh, you and me both, brother. It's like, it's <laughs> like, like, oh, I'm really doing good. And I realize someone cuts me off. I'm like, I'm not as advanced as I feel. But there's this interesting thing of, what if I were to respond to people in traffic as if they're real people and understand their situation? How would I be a different driver? Yeah. Maybe I wouldn't get somewhere as fast as I might want to, but I'd be, a, I'd be more full of peace when I get there. Mm. What is, what is the gospel telling me in these seemingly mundane moments? It's in the mundane moments that scripture brings out the most spiritual work. Mm. I love that, Patrick. And I think that these are the examples you give, I know will resonate with um, some people because it'll help them to begin to reflect on the, the lives they live and the ways they can begin to take uh, what you're saying and begin to apply it into their life. Because you're exactly right. You know, oftentimes um, if we take, you know, a, a, an issue, a societal issue, oftentimes the thing we feel like we're going to contribute most is begin to 
once every year or four years or however it is, depending on local or or um, or federal to make that one vote rather than thinking about not saying that that's not important, but saying that if we begin to instead take that issue and begin to locally to begin to apply our own time and our own energy to begin to to put real faces and real names on that quote unquote issue and begin to work right. towards the betterment of it. That is such a better use maximizing of our, of our energy and our time. But oftentimes we've been trained to think to just cooperate in the system we've been handed yeah. rather than utilize our own agency and the agency that the God, that God gives us and provides us as a gift yeah, and that that your your use of agency that was just what was popping into my head, and it it comes back to how Paul talks about sin, of as people who are saved by Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin, but we still sin. So the the whole complexity that we see in the New Testament is, Jesus has done all these things for you. Why are you putting yourselves back into slavery? It it yeah. it really it becomes where Paul says, you don't have to live like this anymore but it's now you are choosing to give up your own freedom. Stop doing that. And that we, we give up our agency and then we think we're, we're insignificant and we allow ourselves to be pulled back into these systems rather than see how, the, and, and we want this Holy Spirit to work in these major big areas and, and see this grand thing. And we forget that the Holy Spirit actually works among the details. And, and when we talk about creation, the Holy Spirit works at the quantum level the minuscule that adds up to the big. And even if we feel, even if we're insignificant in society, our, the agency that the Spirit gives us is this precious gift that we can influence and shape real people and real situations. It may not be dramatic and get on the news, but long-term it could have a much bigger impact than someone who's, who's on a political uh, calendar. I think presidents have significantly less impact of transformation than we than we suspect. It's it's all about what's happening in what we could call the grassroots. That's really important. Mm, yeah, that's such a good reminder, Patrick. And I I uh, I just would encourage anyone listening that um, again, love theology, read theology. Go pick up Patrick's book. It's a tremendous book. And uh, Patrick, where else can we find you to learn more about your work and uh, keep up with what you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I used to have a website, but I, because of various deeds, I actually ended up canceling it. So <laughs> I'm on Twitter. Uh, Dual Ravens is my, is my Twitter handle. Um, my, you can always send an email to me, Patrick Odin at Gmail, and I'm happy to hear or respond. Uh, I currently work at Fuller Equip, and we, we're putting together some theology courses and other things. Uh, so there, it's it's not as uh, uh, free or open as it used to be, but uh, I am always happy to make a direct connection. So feel free just to reach out to me. Love it. Well, Patrick, this has been so fun. I, I really mean that this has been a joy. So thank you so much for being on. And uh, again, I encourage everybody to uh, check out Patrick's book, Hope for the Oppressor, and his other books as well. Um, again, Patrick, thanks so much for being on, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been fun to do, fun to talk about. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thinking Within the Church really means a lot. If you also don't mind to rate and review the show, that really does help get the word out. You can review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform of your choice. Thanks again, and hope to catch you next episode.